following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, we're going to take a break from Hebrews now as we go into the Christmas season and begin to focus on a Christmas theme. Specifically, the next four weeks, we're going to go into the Gospels and we're going to take the accounts of Jesus' birth from all four Gospels, what's called the Synoptic Gospels, and work our way through it as we lead up to our Christmas Eve service and just take some time to settle into the reality of what was going on when Jesus came to earth and the ways in which, as the biblical writers talk about it, there's some fascinating things that emerge uh, about Jesus and about the meaningfulness of his coming to earth as it pertains to us. But I realized as we were going into this, I've never done a sermon on Christmas as a holiday. I think we've done it maybe somewhat on Easter, but I've never done one on Christmas. And Christmas is my second favorite holiday behind Easter. Easter's the big one. Uh, for Christians, that's like the high holy day of our faith. But Christmas, as we celebrate it today, is a huge deal, not just for us in the church, but for our culture as well. And as I've been thinking about this, Christmas has a pretty fascinating history. And we're getting into that time of year where we start hearing about the war on Christmas. We start having questions about what does it look like to really make Jesus the reason for the season. I have some friends who don't celebrate Christmas at all. Uh, because of its pagan origins, they feel like it was never intended to be a holiday that Christians to observe. So I, there's all kinds of ways to view Christmas, and amongst all of my friends, both Christian and non-Christian, a lot of ways that is celebrated, some of them remarkably different. So I thought, before we go into the accounts in Scripture, I just want to talk about Christmas as a holiday and go through some history about why we actually celebrate it the way we do today, and then close with just a couple of general thoughts uh, about how we can think about and experience Christmas in a way that elevates Jesus. So, uh, let's just jump into this. I think I have a lot of notes to go through today. Um, I'm not typically a guy who reads a lot of history, but I was fairly fascinated um, by what unfolded as I was looking at the origins of Christmas. Keep something in mind. There's disagreements about certain dates, about... Uh, how things unfolded in certain ways, depending what website you go to, you can read a lot of remarkably different things about the history of Christmas. What I tried to do was go research a lot of places, find the things that pretty much everyone agrees on and build from there. We've got a couple historians in the room who I'm sure will feel free to correct me if I get some of these wrong. In fact, I sent my notes to them and I got at least one good correction uh, out of that as well. So, all right, let's jump into this. So the birth of Jesus. The date of Jesus' birth isn't known. Nobody in the scriptures records the date of Jesus' birth. They record that he was born, obviously. We're going to spend the next four weeks talking about that. But they don't record the date. And in fact, no one in the early church was that interested in it. And I'll get to this in, a, to, in just a second, but for probably 250 to 300 years, the birth of Jesus was not celebrated as a holiday. In fact, Origen, a church leader who lived 185 to 254, said it would actually be wrong to honor Christ in the way that we honor Pharaoh and Herod, and that was with birthdays. Birthdays were a huge deal to pagan kings and a huge deal to pagan gods. And Origen wasn't the only early church father who said, uh, we don't celebrate the birthday of Jesus. That's what pagans do. And so there was this movement in the early church that generally said, uh, obviously we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, but to participate in a birthday celebration, 
causes us to kind of traffic in the way pagans honor their gods, and we don't want to do that. Uh, Tertullian, who was a leader uh, in the early church who died around 240, he actually published a list that we can read today of all the different traditions that Christians celebrate, and Christmas was not listed. Uh, there were several other writers at the time as well who wrote lists, and Christmas was not included in those early lists. So there was this monk named Dionysus who did some historical math, and he decided Jesus was probably born actually around B.C. 12. And he did this by factoring in different Roman emperors and kings and when they were born and when they died and different things like that. Not everybody agreed. Lots of people offered different dates. In fact, they offered different days. But generally, the consensus now is that Jesus was born probably around 4 B.C. He almost certainly was not born in December. He was born um, more likely maybe in spring or summer. But once again, this was not a priority in the early church, what that day was. No theology hinges on it. There's nothing about salvation that hinges on a particular day. Well, the Romans at this time were observing something called Saturnalia between December 17th to 25. And this started before the birth of Jesus. It continued for quite a while afterwards. It was a holiday that honored Saturn, which is why it was called Saturnalia. And it was also known as the birthday of the unconquered sun. Uh, it was a party. And I'm going to summarize a lot of really uh, kind of disturbing things I read about Saturnalia as a holiday. We'll just summarize it as it was a party. And it was a time of year that was really in some ways devoted to chaos. They just upended the social order. Uh, slaves would switch with masters. There was all kinds of interesting things they wouldn't do the rest of the year. But they would choose, in fact, different communities would choose someone they called the enemy of the people, and they would label them as the Lord of Misrule. And what this unfortunate victim would do for that week is just would have every indulgence that you could imagine. And in fact, they had this kind of weird power. They could go up to somebody and go, hey, go jump in the river, and they'd have to go jump in the river. They like ruled for a week and experienced uh, every kind of debauchery they could. And then on December 25th, they were killed. They were a sacrificial victim. And the idea to the Romans was that you were destroying the forces of darkness. I guess kind of letting them build up in this one uh, scapegoat, in a sense, and then killing them. So that was Saturnalia. That's what was happening on December 25th, around the time that Jesus was born. Around 274 AD, an emperor created a holiday. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it in Latin, but it meant the birthday of the sun. And this one was actually elevating the sun to the highest position among the gods. Some historians have noted it was actually a movement somewhat toward monotheism, creating one god above all the rest. So that was 274 AD. In 300, about 25 years later, well, in the 300s, sorry, not exactly 300. Pope Julius I chose December 25th as the time to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Most historians believe this was an attempt by the Catholic Church to accommodate people who were already celebrating Saturnalia. They were already having a huge festival this time of year. But now they were getting saved and they were coming into the church, but they were living in communities where this celebration was just massive. It's kind of what you did as part of being that people group. So the Catholic Church said to their new converts, all right, you can continue to be part of this celebration, but the point won't be to celebrate Saturn. The point will be to celebrate 
Jesus. And there was plenty of imagery for the church to pull from. So this was a holiday where light triumphs over darkness. This is a holiday where misrule or chaos dies. This was a holiday that was the birth of the unconquered son. And so now instead of S-O or S-U-N, now the church can say, what if we celebrate the birth of the unconquered S-O-N? So the church pulls in the people who were formerly participating in Saturnalia. This was in the 300s. Very quickly, we see records in church history that the church embraced this as a way to kind of, um, let's call it subvert a holiday that had a lot of things wrong with it and begin to try to redeem a holiday in the same way that Jesus came to redeem the people who wanted to participate in the holiday. So in 320, one Christian writer wrote, We hold this day holy. Not like the pagans because of the birth of the Son, but because of him who made it. In 386, Chrysostom wrote, Without the birth of Christ, there is no baptism, no passion, no resurrection, no ascension, no pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In 389, Gregory warned against feasting in excess, dancing, and crowning the doors. I don't know what crowning the doors is, but it's just worth noting that this quote and the next one from St. Augustine are quotes talking about not discouraging Christians from participating in a celebration of Jesus' birth at this time, but cautioning them because it didn't take long for the Christians who were trying to shift their focus to Jesus to stay really caught up in the previous celebrations. So Gregory says, all right, celebrate, but don't feast in excess. Don't dance. And he's not talking about a Texas two-step here, right? We're talking about uh, the kind of dancing that would not be appropriate for Christians. And then whatever crowning the doors was. And Augustine, not too long after that, wrote, Let us celebrate the birthday of the Lord with all due festive gatherings. He encouraged it, but he went on to say in the same writing, uh, this is a caution. Celebrate Jesus, but you can't celebrate like the pagans do. Uh, to give you an idea of how traditions change over time as they get redeemed, one of the things that happened during Saturnalia was that the Romans would go to door singing songs. Think of caroling, except they did it naked. So you're not going to do that if you're in the early church. Like, sure, you can sing, but put clothes on, which seems like a real basic thing to remind people of, but that's the kind of festival it was. So what we would now call Christmas, which was not yet called Christmas at the time, it was called the Feast of the Nativity. It spreads pretty quickly. It's in Egypt by the 400s. It's in England by the 500s. It's in Scandinavia by the 700s. By the way, Scandinavia is where we get the Yule language. Uh, I don't even know. How many people in here even know what a Yule log is? It shows up in all kinds of Christmas celebrations. A couple people do. Uh, yeah, we got some traditions from Scandinavia. And then Russia by the 900s. In other words, it's spreading everywhere. I think it's probably safe to say that by about 1000 A.D., there was some type of December 25th tradition happening in at least all of the Western world, but had clearly spread some other places as well. So the Middle Ages, this era from approximately 400 to 1400, I just showed you it was expanding during this time. The influence of the church and what is happening in this festival is expanding as well. And I want to be careful as I qualify that. When I say influence of the church, I mean that the church as an institution began to more and more honor December 25th and celebrate 25th in the church buildings and as part of church life. This did not necessarily trickle down into how people celebrated this time of year once they left the church. 
Uh, so, for example, in Saturnalia, part of what would happen in this upending of society is that the poor would go to the rich and demand money. In, in some ways, Saturnalia was a very economic a very economically focused holiday. For a week, the poor became rich and the rich had to give to the poor. Well, that's the way people celebrated in the Middle Ages. At the time of Christmas, the poor would go to the rich, almost like Christmas trick-or-treating, and demand that they give them money or they would have a trick done to them and return. And as far as I can tell, this was Christians who were engaged in this as well, not because the church told them to, but because this was simply part of their tradition. Uh, in about 1039 is when we first see the term Christmas enter the vocabulary. And that's because what the church did, and this was the Catholic church, they would have seven days of fasting before December 24th, before December 25th. On December 24th, Christmas Eve, they would have a mass for Christ. So Christ's mass. Following that was seven days of feasting. So, once again, around 1039, we see the first time, at least in writing, that the word Christ's Mass enters our language. But something to note. So, once again, while the church is, in a sense, more and more formalizing the observation and the worship of Jesus on December 25th, it wasn't necessarily having a lot of impact in how people, what people did when they left the church. So, seven days of fasting before Christ's Mass, and then there was seven days of feasting. And that got out of hand. It just continued to be a problem that kind of plagued the observation of Christmas was that there was a lot of excess associated with it. And a lot of the excess had to do with a real kind of economic vibe that was going on. This was a time of year where the poor often demanded and got a response that the rich give them something. So are you hearing my tension while the church formally was doing more and more to observe and worship Jesus as the reason for the season, there was a lot of lingering kind of traditions that once people walked out of the building, they were still kind of reverting to the old way of celebrating this particular kind of season. I don't have the time to go into all the different ways as you go from country to country that things were shifting and changing, but there there wasn't really... Um, necessarily a common way, like if you lived in Germany and you lived in Finland and then you lived in Sweden, you might experience this time of year very differently. <clears throat> okay, so that was 1039. We're going to fast forward to the 1640s. Between this time, there was a little bit of an ebb and a flow about how big of a deal Christmas was. Uh, in fact, around the 1200s, if I remember correctly, St. Francis kind of went out of his way to kind of revive a Christian interest in this and started doing Christmas plays, which is maybe the start of where Christmas carols started to come into play, but started doing something very publicly that people would come watch a play. And this kind of revived a bit of a spark that had been lost in the 1200s. All right, we get to the 1600s. The Puritan movement is beginning in England. So there was this group of people that were broadly called separatists. They were separating from the Church of England. Some of them moved um, out of England just somewhere else across the pond. Some of them stayed in England. But in the early 1600s, you had two key things happening. Number one, in the 1640s, the separatists left England. They came over to America. These are the Puritans. They left for a lot of reasons. They wanted to separate from the Church of England for a lot of reasons. 
But they clearly weren't happy, among other things, with how Christmas was observed. They wanted to, to honor Jesus, but the type of partying and the excess that went on, they felt was a significant dishonoring to the whole point of the season. So when they come over to America, uh, they outlaw Christmas, but we'll get to that in just a second. Around the same time, a dude named Oliver Cromwell and what was called the Long Parliament take control in the England, and they outlaw Christmas. In fact, they outlaw all Christian holidays that are not Sunday. So the only time Christians were allowed to legally celebrate was Sunday service. Uh, if I understand correctly, they couldn't observe Easter, they couldn't observe Christmas, they did away with it. And it wasn't because separatists or Puritans were just killjoys. They have kind of this reputation of being this dour people that didn't want anybody else to have fun. How dare you smile? That was not the case. Uh, as someone reminded me this morning as we were talking about this, uh, the Puritans' primary drink at Thanksgiving was beer. Like, they knew how to have their own kind of party. What they were frustrated about was what they felt like was this dishonoring of Christ in the excess that was going on in this particular season. Oliver Cromwell felt it too. Uh, Cromwell even changed the name of Christmas to Christtide because Christmas was Christ Mass and the Anglican Church wanted nothing to do with the Catholic Church, so we're not going to use their language. Why don't we rename this? We will now observe Christtide, though it wasn't a party. Uh, 20 years later, Charles II resurrects Christmas as a holiday in England. So in 1660, it becomes official again. It's remained in place ever since. So let's jump to America now. Like I said, the Puritans didn't bring Christmas celebration with them. From 1659 to 1681, the celebration of Christmas was outlawed in Boston. You could be fined five shillings for showing Christmas spirit. Uh, and in fact, I made a comment in my notes. If we want to talk about the war on Christmas in U.S. history, the Puritans win this hands down. They just flat out outlawed it. Once again, not because they were a, a dour, unhappy people, but because they were really disillusioned by how the birth of Jesus was being observed. But at the same time, you have John Smith, who's in Jamestown, if you remember your history. This is in Virginia. Jamestown was settled by Anglicans. This is Church of England. So they had no problem continuing the celebration of Christmas. So for a time, you have this almost a cultural rift in early America where to the north, you've got the Plymouths, and they are not doing Christmas. And more to the south, you have the Anglicans, and they're doing Christmas. So depending where you lived in America at that time, you would have had a very different experience on December 25th. Then comes the American Revolution. Now, all things England, nobody wants anything to do with it. England's the enemy. And so the, the celebration of Christmas as a holiday died out for a while, or at least significantly was dampered, because that was an English holiday, so to speak. <clears throat> so now we move into the 1800s. At the 1800s, unemployment is high. Poverty is high, and Christmas has again become a time where the poor are demanding money from the rich. In fact, New York City started its police department one Christmas because they needed people to quell the rioting that was happening at Christmas time. So this this wasn't a good vibe, and you'll see once again that at that point in American history, the general... Um, the general tenor of the culture about what this holiday was, 
uh, while the focus is in churches, was on Jesus, the cultural focus was kind of reverting back to where they had come from their English history, that this was a time of year where the poor needed to get theirs from the rich, and the assumption was the rich must have been exploiting them. So in 1819, Washington Irving writes a book. So Washington Irving, this is Legends of Sleepy Hollow, Rip Van Winkle, this guy. He wrote a book called The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon, Gent. And it's basically a series of essays about an English squire who invites the poor over on Christmas and treats them well. And they get together in friendship for at least a week or two of the year. And so Irving writes this kind of feel-good story in the midst of a lot of cultural upheaval in America. And he goes back to English tradition and says, listen, can't we at least have a time of year where we all get along? We can share. We ought to be able to do this peacefully. Well, about the same time, Charles Dickens writes A Christmas Carol. This novel has a huge impact both in England and in the United States. If you've seen, you know, The Three Ghosts of Christmas. Um, but once again, what's the focus of that story? Money. Rich Scrooge has not been treating his employees fairly, and Christmas is the time of year where he tries to make things right. So between Washington Irving and Charles Dickens, the movement in America as Christmas becomes more and more popular isn't necessarily a movement that's originating within the church because Jesus is becoming more and more popular. Though many people at that time, if not most people, were, were churched in some sense. It is, though, a very general cultural movement. If there's going to be peace on earth and goodwill toward men, it's probably going to involve something economic. So after this, you begin to see this movement in American culture. Christmas becomes more and more popular. And it becomes a season characterized by love, by generosity, by warmth, things that are all admirable, but not necessarily something that's fueled by a love of Jesus. And because at that time, America is this melting pot, all these immigrants are coming in. You see just Christmas traditions from everywhere slowly coming together and beginning to emerge as Americans celebrate Christmas. So 1870 is when Christmas is officially declared a federal holiday. Some states had it before then. I think that was generally more southern states. Uh, But by 1870, it's a federal holiday. So let me summarize this section. The church embraced a cultural holiday and sought to redeem it. Go back to Saturnalia. Christmas isn't ours, so to speak. It was a, it was an existing holiday that the church moved into and attempted to subvert and redeem for the glory of God. I'm going to talk about this more later. I love that idea. It's one thing I love about Christmas. I'm not put off by how Christmas started. Because if God, if one of the things God does is move into our lives and redeem our lives, I would hope that his people would hear a calling to move into their communities and their cultures and help to redeem, in a sense, that which is lost. So I love that Christmas does this. But I want us to also acknowledge that in the history of Christmas, there's been some tension. There's, there's been a danger that even as we participate in a holiday where in our church we put Jesus front and center and we say we are celebrating the true reason for the season. There's always, for 2,000 years, 
there's been a little bit of a danger that we get sucked into the cultural observation. And this becomes about, oh, I wonder what kind of gifts I will get. I wonder if my boss will give me that pay raise I deserve for my Christmas bonus. Right? There's this lingering kind of financial, like, I should get mine at Christmas. If it's a good Christmas, my stocking is full. Okay, okay we got to acknowledge that's not part of the church's Christmas tradition in terms of what the church has taught and focused on. When we find ourselves getting kind of pulled into that way of thinking about Christmas, we're moving away from the redemptive side of the holiday and back into this sense of, oh, um, this is about me. Is that uncomfortable? I'm going to get to this a little bit. I love the giving of gifts. I love the idea that we're called to generosity in this season. But but one of my concerns, and, and I have felt this tension throughout my life, by the way. Um, I've spent way too much time in my life going, I wonder what I'm getting for Christmas. Which is at the point when we celebrate it as Christians. But I, I tend to revert it to that, like, ooh, what's on sale? What can I buy that I don't need this week? Right? Okay, thank you. All right, so the church has always lived in this tension, walked this tightrope of we want Jesus to be the reason for this season, but we have always existed in cultures that tend to distract us. I'm going to get to that a little bit more later. All right, Christmas customs. Just a little bit of time on this. Uh, because there are so many trappings of Christmas. And what you're going to see as I go through this list is a lot of them did not originate in the church, but once again, Christians have looked at something and said, hey, I know how I can use that to point toward Jesus. So Christmas trees. Uh, pagan religions have used trees for as long as history to be a part of their different celebrations. Um, the oak was always a popular one. The church did not ban trees when people began to celebrate Christmas. People are already bringing trees in some fashion into their home or decorating them. What the church did, and this goes back to, I believe, a dude named Boniface, they said, we're going to use the fir tree for two reasons. One, it's shaped like a triangle. And at that time, the triangle was being used to discuss the concept of the Trinity. So every time you look at this kind of tree, you're reminded of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The second thing was the evergreen was evergreen. So it's a symbol of eternal life. So rather than saying, get rid of these pagan trees, well, they did say that, but they didn't say get rid of trees. They said, bring in something that's going to point you toward Jesus. Tinsel. Uh, the legend is that a very poor family had nothing to decorate their tree. And one night, a spider, while they were sleeping, a spider uh, made a web over their whole tree, which is kind of creepy, but let's move on. And then at night, in a miracle, baby Jesus turns the tinsel into silver. Uh, so that's a legend, but that's kind of the origin of when tinsel got put onto the trees. Candy canes. Uh, they're the shepherd's crook. Once again, you can read lots of different opinions about this. Um, this is the one I found that seemed to be the most mainstream. It's shaped like a shepherd's crook and is a reminder of Jesus as the good shepherd. Poinsettias, they look a bit like the star of Bethlehem. That's why we get those flowers rather than see roses at Christmas time. The wreath is a symbol of true love, almost like we talk about our wedding rings. It's the circle that never ceases, so with God's love at Christmas time. The holly, 
has become a symbol of the crown of thorns because you get the actual thorns and the little red berries are like the blood. Bells stand for simply joy because Christmas is the time of celebration, but also it's a reminder of Jesus as our great high priest. Jewish priests wore bells on the bottom of their robes, so these bells are ringing in the joy of Christmas Day. The tree baubles are the tree balls that we hang on the trees. Uh, this one fascinates me. For a long time, the church observed December 24th as Adam and Eve's birthday. And they would hang apples on a tree as a representative of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Like, this is sin. Like, I don't know, children, you're depraved. Don't forget it. Uh, eventually, that kind of moved into, why don't we use that to represent the fruit of the Holy Spirit? So uh, as you hang your Christmas baubles this year, uh, remember original sin, and then be thankful for the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, Christmas tree lights. Martin Luther is credited with this. Around 1500, one night he's out walking around Christmas time and looking up at the stars and is just amazed by God and his creation. And he goes in and puts candles on his tree, which I'm not sure is the best idea to do on a fir tree. Um, but nonetheless, it's like, ooh, indoor stars. And so as best I could tell, kind of a celebration of, of lights springs from that. So lights reminding us of the greatness of God's creation. Uh, mistletoe is one of my favorite ones. Mistletoe literally means dung, twig, because mistletoe doesn't grow out of the ground. Uh, it grows in trees, and what will happen is bird droppings will nest like in the crook of a tree, and then the mistletoe will grow from out, out of that. So mistletoe is dung, twig. So if you'd like to call it that this year, feel free. But here's the crazy thing. The Catholic Church actually outlawed using it for a while because the pagans loved it so much. So for the Druids, it was a symbol of fertility. Uh, lots of people in England in the Middle Ages would hang it over their doorways to ward off evil or ward off evil spirits or witches. Uh, Scandinavians thought it was a plan of peace. Norse legend had whole mythologies involving mistletoe, and it was really about the protection of life. Many people saw it as a cure-all medicine. So eventually the church goes, you know what? Um, Jesus heals all nations. He's a cure-all medicine. Jesus brings peace. Jesus died so we can live. Uh, it's fertility for the Druids. Uh, Jesus was born. That required fertility. So like eventually they said, you know what? Go ahead and use it. Just remember that as we talk about all these things, our focus isn't to be on all these other things. It's the focus on Jesus, who is, who is the source of all these things. And then finally, Christmas presents. It's a reminder of the gifts of the Magi. It's a reminder of the gift of Jesus to us. Uh, my last symbol, and this might be uh, one that was the most interesting to me, was Santa Claus. So here's Santa Claus. St. Nicholas was a real dude who lived in the 300s. In fact, he was part of the Council of Nicaea, which I think Scott mentions every time he preaches. So uh, he was one of the bishops who was there and convened the Council of Nicaea. And a legend sprang up about him and his generosity that he in particular saw young children in his community um, living in terrible poverty and their parents were having to sell them into slavery and they didn't have food. And he went out of his way to make sure they were provided for. Some legends say he stuffed stockings. Um, that's somewhat disputed. So that is St. Nicholas. Well, in about 1087, a group of sailors move his bones to Italy, and they basically start to worship him. 
And this group, and it probably cult is a better term, eventually kind of moved into some of the Germanic religions and the Celtic pagan religions. And once they moved into that, they were moving into some religions that worshipped a god named Woden from where we get our, our uh, day of the week, Wednesday, Woden's Day. So that's Woden. Woden rode a horse through the heavens. He had long flowing white hair. So St. Nicholas gets pulled into this tradition. And then the Celts get converted and they move into the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church looks at all these things and says, tell you what, uh, sure, keep it. That's not Woden. That's St. Nicholas. Done. Keep celebrating. Is that, does that make you a little uncomfortable? That's what happened? That's what happened. I don't have to tell you. Uh, so in 1809, Washington Irving, uh, back to Washington Irving, he wrote a story that featured a white-bearded, flying horse-riding St. Nicholas, but he used his Dutch name, which was Santa Claus. That was 1809. 1822, we get, twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney in care and hope that would soon be there, right? So that's 1822. That poem is based on Washington Irving's story. Soon after that, there was a newspaper illustrator named Thomas Nast who pulled from those things, and he drew like 2,000 cartoons about Christmas for a magazine called Harper's Weekly. And he moved him to the North Pole and gave him elves and gave him a list of good and bad children, and there you see one of his drawings about Santa. But this was before the world had color. So we still need to add red. So enter Coca-Cola. In the 1930s, Coca-Cola decides to make Santa Claus their spokesperson, and Santa needs to be red because Coke is red. And that's Santa Claus. So Santa Claus is a Christian bishop from the Council of Nicaea, filtered through Celtic gods, Dutch culture, and American cartoons, and brought to you by Coca-Cola. All right. I have three points of application this morning. Just keep in mind, this is in many ways an intro sermon. I, I really like my sermons to point to Jesus as much as is possible. And today, I mean, we're talking about Christmas. I, I don't generally like to sway too far from from being really biblically focused, but for the sake of setting the table for our next four weeks of discussion, uh, I felt like we needed to do this this morning, and I want to give a couple points of application before we close. Number one, I said this before, I'm just not bothered by the pagan history. Christianity has always done this. For 2,000 years, Christianity has entered into things that are broken or fallen or sinful and sought to subvert false worship and replace it with true worship and to help redeem those things that are broken by pointing or using them to point toward Christ. They've done this with holidays, they've done this art, they've done this with symbols. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the anchor in Hebrews? The anchor wasn't an original sign of hope with Christians, it was a Roman sign of hope. And the Christians said, sure, Uh, but don't forget that anchor is Jesus. They just pointed it in the right direction. Uh, I'll probably add some links if you want to read this online where you can see how the history of the church is full of Christianity doing this. So... I, for one, it doesn't bother me. My bigger question is always, what are Christians doing with it now? Give you another example. I know when Earth Day started a number of, I don't know if this was decades ago or years ago, 
Remember early on in the church at large, there was some resistance. They're like, this is a new age kind of neo-pagan, Gaia, Mother Earth, Goddess celebration. Christians should have nothing to do with it. And then Christians started going, wait a minute, God made the earth. In fact, Genesis commands us to be stewards of it. Why wouldn't we celebrate Earth Day? But why don't we celebrate it by pointing toward the God who made it and how we as, we as Christians are called to steward it. So they, they didn't ignore the holiday. They moved into it and offered something that it didn't have before. So uh, the downside is, of course, it's never clean. There's always this danger that what we bring to the holiday to transform the holiday um, will be overshadowed by what that holiday does to begin to transform us. So th- this is my one thought, is that we have to be careful as we enter into the Christmas season, as frankly we probably need to be careful with Easter, because there's other traditions that have impacted that as well, that when we as Christians enter this holiday season, that we're remembering we're entering it as Christians to honor Jesus. That means a focus on Jesus. That means, in addition to looking at Scripture and reminding ourselves about the reality of the Incarnation, which we're going to do over the next four Sundays, I think it means asking ourselves, how do I represent Jesus more than ever in this time of this time of year, in this holiday? Okay, so I'm not going to ask, what can I be given? I'm going to ask, what can I give? I'm not going to ask, how can other people love me better during this season? I'm going to ask, how can I love them better? How can I more than ever be sacrificial in my love and be poured out? How can I more than ever show the peace of Christ, the the joy of Christ, the hope of Christ? Um, When you're waiting in that, my understanding was at the line at Menards on Black Friday. I wasn't brave enough. actually stretched to the back of their store. Okay, if you happen to be in that line, did you embody the peace and love and joy of Jesus? Right? We get lots of opportunities in this holiday to be reminded of this. All right, point number two is that I think we need to relax with our concern about the war on Christmas. Uh, So for 250 years, the church just didn't celebrate. I mean, even once they decided Jesus was probably born on this date, they, they just didn't celebrate. If Well, we, we often talk about, I wish we could go back to what the early church did and redo it. If we're going to do that, we don't honor Christmas as a cultural celebration. I'm not saying we should do that. Uh, I'm just saying for 250 years, the early church waged a war on Saturnalia. Uh, and in fact, we're resistant to the idea of of that celebration coming into the church. Uh, if Starbucks had existed 200 years ago, and they had put out a cup that said, Merry Christmas, we'd have been the ones boycotting them for daring to celebrate Jesus on this holiday in that fashion. Is that awkward? Uh, 200 years from now, that might be the case again. Who knows where Christmas celebration is going? Uh, I can't imagine Jesus or the early church supporting Christians being offended that those outside the church don't embrace the celebration of Jesus the same way we do. I worship someone different than they do. I think about Jesus differently than they do. I have a different set of language, and symbols mean a different thing to me as a follower of Christ. Um, I don't think it's reasonable for me to expect people who do not worship Jesus to, 
to honor Jesus the way that I want them to. What I can do is honor Jesus with my words, with my actions, with everything that I can I can uh, say and do. I can embody what goodwill on earth looks like. I, I can embody with the help of Jesus what peace and hope and love and joy looks like. Right, this is the time of year where we glorify Jesus. We let our light shine to point toward the light of the world. So I'll just give you my opinion on this. If Starbucks wants to print a cup that says Happy Saturnalia, and some company won't let their employers say Merry Christmas but makes them say Happy Holidays, that's fine. Um, I mean, I, I get it. They don't worship like I do. Why would I expect them to use the language I do? Why would I expect them to think about Jesus the way I do? The way it is in our culture, at least some common graces are celebrated. Um, be kind, be happy, be nice. We at least give lip service to this as a culture. I can get behind that. I mean, Christmas season certainly isn't less than that. I think as a Christian, it's more than that. And then I'll go into Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A, and they'll say, Merry Christmas. Awesome. And if I go into a store and someone says, Happy Holidays, what I'm inclined to do is say, Happy Holidays and Merry Christmas. I'm not trying to make a point and embarrass them like, Do you mean Merry Christmas? They might not. Why would I be offended at that? I mean, honestly, why would I be offended at that? I don't care what Starbucks puts on their cups. Starbucks isn't a church. They're not a Christian organization. They don't view Jesus the way I do. Okay, you, I'm not going to tell you what to do on this holiday. What I will do is celebrate Jesus. I can say Merry Christmas wherever I go, to remind people of Christ. And I can show the love and generosity of Jesus. And when someone says happy holidays to me, I can smile and I can say, you too. Not, how dare you? I, I just think Christmas gives us the opportunity to show the love of Jesus. And I think that is being gracious and being gentle and not being easily provoked and not being offended. Loving people. All right, number three, my final point. I think our biggest challenge as Christians is to make sure our Christmas celebrations don't settle into a secularized version. Uh, There's a book called Christmas, Festival of the Incarnation by a guy named Donald Hines. And I was reading a review of his book. In the interest of full disclosure, I've not read this book. I read a review of this book. And the reviewer noted uh, this quote from his book, A capitalist Christmas focuses on all the materials that claim to be good instead of on the good that claims to be material. That would be Jesus, the good that claims to be material. And I, I just think if there's a war on Christmas, I think it's taking place in our own hearts. Where we're living in this tension that on the one hand, we know as Christians, we want to focus on Jesus and have this be the time of year where more than ever, we're reminded of the importance of the people of God living and speaking and acting like the people of God and what we do and say meaning to pass on what God has given to us. And I'll speak for myself, but I think we probably all participate in this. It is so easy for me to lose track of that focus and wonder, What's the bonus I'm getting? What's the present I'm getting? 
just how nice will my family be to me on Christmas Day, right? I felt like I just threw my family under the bus. I didn't mean to do that. Um, we can we can lose that focus, and it ends up becoming a season that in the end is about us instead of a season that's about Jesus. And I don't mean that to shame you. I don't mean that to put false guilt on you. I'm just saying I think the church, when we as Christians celebrate this time of year in that kind of tension, a tension we need to be aware of that just regrounds us over and over. What does it mean that Jesus is the reason for this season in this situation? Over and over, over and over. So if we're to celebrate Christmas as part of our worship of Christ, it must involve the elevation of Jesus above all else. And that's our next four Sundays. We're just going to dive into the gospel accounts of Jesus coming to earth and the beauty of it, the importance of it, the life-changing aspect of it. Uh, that's one thing I love about Christmas is that we get to take this time every year uh, to really focus like a laser on that part of our faith. Lord, uh, I am grateful that you're a God who redeems things, not just our lives, but you redeem families, you redeem communities, you can even redeem cultures. Uh, and I pray that this Christmas season, uh, as we recognize what the church has sought to do with this time of year in putting Jesus front and center and having a worship and a focus um, that hopefully by our observation does draw other people into. Just the light is so bright that it can't help but be seen. Uh, I pray that that's true in our lives, true for us as a church, true for the church community in Traverse City, that this year our honoring of you is this city on a hill kind of light that's seen by all. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.